0: Hey, Katarina.
1: Hi, Victoria. So happy to see you. Feels like forever. <laughs> <Yes, and>
0: agreed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey,
0: Jamie. Nice to see you.
2: Hi, Victoria. How are you today? Well, hey, Serena. Hello. Hi, Serena. How are you? Hi. Good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Good, 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 good. Hello, everyone. Hello, Ethan. Hello. 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 How is everyone? Hope
1: everything is good.
2: Crazy day so far. Was rounded out with some <laughs> evolution of abstract thought.
1: I mean, it's great news, but you know,
2: it's a good crazy.
1: Exactly. Totally good. I'm very happy to hear that. Hi, Ethan. How are you doing? I feel like whenever I've been like two days on Clubhouse feels like an eternity, I didn't see people.
3: Oh good, I've been getting over some back troubles that I've had the last two weeks, so I got a bunch of stuff done today, which was good.
1: Oh yeah, I I hope, I'm glad you're studying, you (laughs) feel better, it's very annoying. Yeah,
3: this is good, I've been... Reading some other books related to this kind of topic recently. Really? What have you read? Uh, Right now I'm reading a book called Incomplete Nature. A guy named Deaconess. Cool. What's that
2: uh, about?
3: It's kind of a broad-based rambling around the top this topic and um, consciousness and evolution and teleology, and non-te- non-teleological explanations.
2: Broad-based um, rambling, huh?
3: Yeah. That's how I feel about it at the moment. <laughs> that's really cool. I guess you all ready for the talk then. And The next book I think we're going to do is one that I love which is dear to my heart. It's come up many times in different ways in different rooms is about uh, Gerald Edelman's last one of his more recent books, Pop's Eye of his theories.
2: I'm not familiar with him, could you fill me in?
1: Welcome.
4: Ooh. Can you hear me? Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. That might be better. Can you hear me now? Much better. Oh, yeah, yes, okay. Sorry. Kind of welcome, Dr. Welcome. Yeah, I was on the wrong thing. I was listening in, instead of of um, of actually participating to the presentation. I'm sorry about that.
0: Welcome, Clement. That was quite a, a, um, an entrance. That's
3: very <laughs> yeah. dramatic. <laughs> yeah. Excellent.
2: The sounds of abstract thought. <laughs>
4: <laughs> okay, now we got doctor. a sound. Okay, that's perfect.
1: Well, actually we had the guest speaker here a while ago. I don't know, Serena, if you were there. Joe Barnaby, he, he records uh, brain activity from humans and um, as a side project, turns them into art, so in soundscapes. Oh, really? Yeah, like when people meditate when they are on LSD and focusing and in different states. So yeah. We should invite them back. But yeah, it's <laughs> I I'm not sure if it if it sounds similar, but would be interesting to play one thing. <laughs> well, welcome. And um, thank you for making it. <laughs> going through the trouble to join clubhouse and everything really we are very thankful that you
4: No, thank you for inviting me
1: hi denise um yeah meet uh our, uh our member like team uh co-moderator victoria and jamie and serena dennis and Ethan is here very often too. Uh, yeah, uh, it will be a great discussion, I think. So, really looking forward to it. And yeah, maybe, maybe just the title can... of the speech is fascinating. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm just excited. Sorry, I'm really quiet. I agree. So, yeah, shall we start? Uh, I is everyone okay? Ready to to start? let drop in, everyone. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, let me start by welcome everyone to Science Society and a special thanks, of course, to um, Clément, am I saying it right? Clément Gar- Garin or?
4: Yeah, it, it's not far. It's Clément Garin, it's not far.
1: Clément Garin.
4: Yeah,
1: okay. you got it. <laughs> I'm from Europe. I cannot speak uh, French. I'm very sorry. My parents made me study Latin and then, you know, at English and uh, and it's later so on fast. Spanish. So, <laughs> I'm really sorry. It was
4: already really good. Don't <laughs> worry. I heard worse than this pronunciation. <laughs> Far from that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. Welcome, everyone. Um, and we are very excited to... Um, meet our guest speaker and let me tell you a little bit about um our guest speaker here today um claimant i um sorry i did it wrong yeah ago. that's very good um, <laughs>
5: that's very good <laughs> uh
1: he's uh he's a researcher at the uh, van der university and um he did his master uh in science um in Lille uh, in France and his uh, pharmacist a doctor at the ufr um, university in Champagne, of uh, france and his doctor of philosophy um, in neuroscience at the university of paris um, in france and um, he did his uh, he worked at different um, institutes um before he was at he was at the Vanderbilt university he was at wake forest university in north carolina and um he published quite a lot of (laughs) a lot of very interesting papers and received uh some um, honors and awards and we are very honored to have you here today and uh, share your exciting, uh, really cool uh, research with us. And if it's okay, Victoria will ask you a few questions before you start with your talk today. Thank you. All right, here I am. So
0: I'm so happy to welcome you here to Clubhouse and to Science Society, Clement, and to give... mm, a a little bit of um maybe a a a well-rounded introduction to our audience of you i have a question for you which is if you can reflect on your life and think of when there was maybe a time that you noticed that you had a special you felt a special connection to science and that could be any time in your childhood or a young adult or any time at all an experience or person or class but sometime that science was a thing that you were really feeling connected to
4: well that's a deep question Um, honestly it's difficult to tell you when i really felt the connection for science i believe it was somehow always here and I would say the real connection with science was probably just like just loving mammalians in general, loving animals, on on wanting to understand them and I guess this is this is the start of the big adventure to to be willing to to understand how they think, how how their brain is functioning, on also how how to define us. Uh so yeah, this I think this is the start of of yeah, of why I like science and why I I, I want to go into that direction. Not sure if you answered your question. <laughs>
0: you did, you did. It's always um yeah I'm I'm just thinking about your answer because it's so um yeah I appreciate the reflection and I appreciate your honesty and and sharing that with us, because it's fascinating to hear everyone, you know, everyone's connection is so different and some people feel and, um, driven to solve a problem. And and I think our answers tell us, you know, how we connect with science talks about, you know, ourselves too. Best and best. so if you can continue this question, can you lead us along the path to your current research, How you, how you wound up here?
4: Sure. So um, I have a very, I would say, difficult, maybe not difficult, but very lost beginning. Uh, I started uh, uh, by willing to be, um, I wanted to be a forensic scientist originally. So I have a background in toxicology, in forensic toxicology, but it appeared that in France it was uh, it was difficult to have a position in forensic toxicology, and they were asking a PhD for that. And I tried to find a PhD in forensic toxicology, and I never managed to find one. And I actually find one in the lab in a, in Paris where I was. And my my PI was working on Alzheimer, and he was trying to induce Alzheimer in a in a in a mouse lemur in the, the first uh, mammals for which I characterized uh, resting state network. I'm gonna talk quickly about that. Um, yeah, uh, the, the original project was not at all uh, uh, in like the purpose of the project was just inducing uh, the, the, the disease in this animal and trying to understand how the brain is gonna to react to that. Um, I mean, this project was like very, very, difficult and we never actually managed to to reach the end of that project however uh, i was also using this technique the, the technique of bold imaging which is called also fmri for those you know on this technique we managed to apply it to mouse lemur and i for the first time saw the for saw the network of the animals and i was absolutely fascinated by them on little by little i wanted to understand how 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 this network organized in other mammalians and that I wanted to try to compare them, and then wanted to try to build evolutionary theory based on that. Uh, so yeah, this this side project opened a complete door to a new world that is almost unexplored. On on when I found that, I was yeah fascinated by it. On uh, um, now I'm moving towards. Non-invasive technology. I, I, I'm about to uh, move back to France. On uh, I recently trained my personal dog to go awake in an MRI machine. On I managed to extract her, her default network. On uh, now I want to, to try to work with an awake animal who are willing to go in an MRI machine and try to understand how also different breeds how their brain is different, a lot of love, love that idea, but always related to brain function onto mammals. Um, Yeah, it's a long story.
0: <laughs> thank you. That's so much. It's so, it's so interesting. I'm writing it all down. It's just so <laughs> fascinating. You know, it's like beads in a necklace and, and um, I don't know, we're stepping stones towards something really great. And so thank you. I, I appreciate that so much. We all do. Um, Cause I know you weren't expecting it.
2: <laughs> so no. now <laughs> uh,
0: You're welcome to launch into your discussion and however you would like to do it. You may, we're here to handle guests and the chat in the room. I don't know if you noticed that, but some, some guests prefer to give their talk and then have a and a following. Some mm-hmm. guests prefer to have questions along the way. So whichever way you would like, um, we're happy to be here to facilitate that. And thank you.
4: Yeah I'm completely open to any question anytime like don't hesitate to stop me especially if you have something that you don't understand sometimes it can be necessary to understand the following step so I prefer that if people is there something that I even like didn't explain well or someone didn't understand whatever the reason is like don't hesitate to tell me oh I need I need some explanation for that and I will I will try to do my best to To help you guys uh, uh, following me
0: (laughs) well thank you so the mic is yours and do we have you do have your slides we have your info up at the top so people can follow along
4: so i'm gonna say next slide to to tell you guys that you need to to move slides because you you can see mine obviously um, yeah, so this, uh, this article is dedicated to uh, the study of the evolution of uh, an important network in the numeral brain that is called the default mode network. And uh, this has been explained. Uh, this study was conducted in uh, mostly, in in mostly uh, Wake Forest University in North Carolina, but now I'm in Vanderbilt. Uh, so next slide. Um, so on this slide, you can see that uh, there is several representation of the mammalian brains. On uh, on the right, you can see that several characteristic has been characterized in those mammals. On uh, one of them can be, for example, the sulcus on the gyrus, and you can see that there is a huge diversity of uh those. Uh, shape of brain, but also you have in red the number of neurons, and you can see that there is a tremendous variability of the number, number of neurons. Um, if you're interested in uh, the study of number of d- neurons, there is uh, a, a few amazing study that has been performed by Herculano um at uh, Vanderbilt University, too. She has also an amazing TED that you might be interested in seeing. Um, and uh, so these parameters are several parameters that can be almost directly observed, but you have also the parameters such as the localization of the various areas, such as the motor area, the visual area, whatever it is. But we managed to, uh, until now, characterize like few of them. And we observe that they're not always exactly at the same location, but we still don't know why. On that, some are bigger than other, and we don't know why. Too, uh, it's obviously one of the things that we might thought it oh, it's related to cogn- cognition, but we need to go further to explain the mechanism that led to the actual commission of the cognition of the human brain, but also to the actual com- cognition of other species' brain. It, I still believe that it would be not uninteresting to understand how our brain works, but uh, the the brain of other species. So you can move now to the next slide. So uh, the networks, the history of the networks, uh, the way I characterize them and the way that they have, they have been characterized is fairly recent and it has been really well developed thanks to a technique that is called BOLD, uh, BOLD or Functional MRI. And this technique basically allows you to indirectly measure the variation of blood oxygen in the brain. So we know that uh, those variations they indirectly correspond to variation of, of neuronal activity. On um, that, well, then we're gonna record them, and we're gonna try to, for example, analyze a correlation between various areas in the brain. We're gonna be able to recover an organization that corresponds to, uh, for example, the cytoarchitectonic organization, which is the organization of the cells in the brain, and that is meaningful uh, in a numerous pathology. For example, uh, with deafness, you're gonna observe a decrease of the correlation between the left left hemisphere auditory cortex and the right hemisphere auditory cortex. So this is, for example, for the simple, uh, it's a relationship between bold signal and pathology. But there is one network that is actually particularly interesting because uh, this network is related to numerous diseases that are actually a very big problem for our society right now, such as Alzheimer. We know that uh, um, uh, more and more people uh, are getting this disease. We still are not able to really explain why does it occur. And we know that, for example, the default mode network is particularly impacted in uh, in this disease. So we can observe decrease of the correlation uh, uh, between components of the default mode network. On the function of the default mode network, the basic way to define it is that this is the network that is going to be the mo- most active at rest, so when you're not doing anything. Um, so the network characterization oh sorry next slide i need to get used to that next slide uh so the network characterization has been performed actually in very few spaces in comparison to the number of spaces or even mammals existing on the planet so you can see that here it has only been characterized in 16 spaces uh all of uh, those spaces have claimed to have find a network architecture that could correspond to the default mode network. Uh, but uh, now, next slide. Uh, oh yeah, I don't know if you can see that I should not have done that, but anyway. Um, yeah, so the basic characteristic where that they all possess a motor, a visual, and a sub network on, yeah, as I said, uh, all the authors claim to have find a default mode network. However, several Christian did remain concerning how this network is organized in human in comparison to other mammalian species. And now you should arrive to the next slide that is called cerebral resting state network in humans. Hopefully we are all on the same slide. Um, so um, yeah, so how is organized this network in human? Because if you want to compare it with other species, you need to know how it's organized in human. So you have basically five clusters that are strongly correlated together one is a posterior parietal cluster, another one is a temporal, pari- a temporal cluster, another one is a posterior cingulate cortex a cortex cluster, and the last one is a medial prefrontal cluster. So two of these clusters, the posterior cingulate on the medial prefrontal cortex, are very important characteristic of this default mode network on the medial prefrontal cortex is especially interesting because this network has been considered as a regulator or gateway function of self-representation. So we believe that the connection with the posterior cingulate cortex is especially important, especially since um, the function of the posterior cingulate cortex uh, is known to, um, I would say, um, to, 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 to allow you to inter- interact with your external environment or your internal environment. and more you're going to be able is going to also be very important for suppressing um, uh, external activity in, or, in order to focus on some internal activity. So these two clusters of the default network are ex- yeah, extremely important for human cognition. So you can move to the next slide. So here is the first paper that I was talking about that I published during my PhD. So we had the luck to have an extremely powerful MRI, an 11.7 Tesla. And to give, to give you roughly an idea, in human, usually we use 1.5 or 3 Tesla. Uh, so it's almost 10 times stronger, more, well, more powerful than a, than a human uh, MRI. You can move to the next slide. And here is the six network that we uh, managed to extract in um, in uh, in the mouse lemur. On uh, the first thing, so if you move next, you're going to see uh, the DMN-like thing, with the DMN-like question. Yeah, we identified two networks that we were not sure whether they should be attributed to default network-like function or not. We uh, find other networks that were quite obvious: the somatomotor network, the occipital network, the two subcortical network. And these two networks, for which we have had absolutely no idea to what they could correspond. You can move to the next slide. It's called the default network in mammals. And uh, in this slide, uh, it's a fairly recent study that has been published about roughly the same time of our mouse lemur article. On uh, what they find in this study is that in marmoset, uh, the medial prefrontal cortex was not connected to the posterior cingulate cortex. On, um, on. Oh, sorry, my cat is screaming. <laughs> um, on, uh, on. Yeah. So they, they study the network of marmoset with fMRI, but also by injecting tracer tracer in, for example, the posterior cingulate cortex, and they confirmed that. It's not only the correlation of the neurons that are not connected between the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex, but also the anatomical connection. So this article uh, like drive me to the article that I'm going to talk about an evolutionary gap uh, because I thought, wow, this network is actually very similar to what I observe in mouse limer and it was not clear whether uh, this default network organization in marmoset was just something specific to this animal or whether it's something that could be reproduced in other non-human spaces. So now you can move to the next slide. So now we are on the cell report article and we're gonna move again to the next slide. So uh, in order to compare the uh, network organization between non-human spaces and human, I had to gather uh, several data sets of bold, um, bold fmri data and uh, i managed to uh, by collaboration and contacting people to have researcher in uh, canada but also here in the us and in france sharing awake data sets in marmoset in macaques i took my anesthetized uh, data sets of the mouse lemur and i also managed to download fmri data from human online if one day you want to see how it works. There is a lot of data sets that you can easily download and play with. Uh, So we're going to move to the next slide. So this is basically what I was saying. This is a data set that uh, we uh, gathered for this today. And um, yeah, you can see that, as I said, the macaque and human uh, they usually uh, are recorded in 3T, um, 3T SLI MRI. And for mammoth, and mouse, lemur, which are very smaller spaces with sort of smaller brain, you need very more powerful MRI to study them. We can move to the next slide. Um, here is uh, the network that I extracted in those four uh, spaces. Uh, and I used to do that net, uh, an algorithm, a machine learning algorithm that is called dictionary learning. So this is a very fancy method, but I actually like it because in comparison to other methods that are used, traditionally used in the field, it actually allow to extract networks that can be attributed to, uh, it, it allow you to extract regions that can be attributed to different network. Uh, so this is actually very important to me because uh, from an anatomical point of view, it makes sense that a region is not only connected to one network, but anyway, I applied this algorithm on I extract the traditional uh, default mode network organization that you can see on the top left of the human, so you can see the PCC component, the medial prefrontal component, and um, the temporal component. I extracted using the set from Canada of marmosets so on the right, uh, the default mode network that uh, correspond to uh, exactly what has been described in the paper and marmoset that I showed you earlier. And I extracted the macaque default mode network uh, in uh, an awake dataset that uh, uh, has been shared by a French team. And you can see that in comparison to human for marmoset on macaques, we don't have the medial, prefrontal, the medial prefrontal component, but we still have the PCC component, the posterior parietal component, and we have actually a very strong component that is located in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that we can also find in marmosets in mouse lemur. And you can see that the mouse lemur also have this organization without the medial prefrontal cortex. So this was fairly easy. Surprising, but also not that much, given the literature that we had. Um, The the interesting thing was these common clusters, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. This cluster is actually including regions that are dedicated to vision. So now we're going to go through the hypothesis. And again, I'm going far from the data. So it's just an idea. My idea was that rather than having a space seat that is going to, when they're going to have, I would say, free time or when they're not going to have anything special to do, they're going to be focusing on the external environment. They're going to see if a predator is going to come on, try to eat them or whatever. But they need this connection with the PCC in order to focus on the task, which is looking at the external environment. Um, to me, my idea was if the middle prefrontal cortex is strongly connected to the SPCC region, it's because when we have free time, we're trying to plan in the future or to think about how we're going to do this or do that. But this is just hypothesis, so please, if nothing is 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 like proved yet, ex- except the organization that you can see that see here. So now you can move to the next slide. So. uh the thing is that if the medial prefrontal cortex is not involved in a similar network as human, it must be involved somewhere because we know that marmoset, macaques, and mouse lemur, they have a medial prefrontal cortex. So to what region is this network connected? And we find that it seems to be consistently, consistently connected to a temporal region that is not the same across all the three spaces, but the characteristic is that it's connected to a temporal region. We can also see in macaques several connections with the PCC, but that are less stronger than uh, than uh, with human. So maybe there is a beginning of development of this connection between medial prefrontal cortex and PCC in macaques. We can move to the next slide. So please place three, and you're going to have the full slide. It's going to be much easier. So here, there's a basically... Um, Another method uh, that we uh, use in order to, um, in order to extract the connectivity, the basically just the correlation between the different cluster of those uh, four animals, and um, so I'm just to be sure I am on the slide that's called connectivity difference between and humans. and um, what you can see here is that if you take the pattern of connectivity of the PCCs on the top left, uh, you can see that the connectivity profile of macaques, marmousette, and mouse lemur are way more similar between themselves than when compared to human. And if you look at the connectivity pattern of the medial prefrontal cortex, you can see that this connectivity pattern is also much more similar between non-aminoid species, so macaque, marmousette, mouse lemur, rather than when they compare to human. And after we've done fancy uh, statistical analysis and we also confirmed that it's just nothing, it's just not only something that you can see visually, but also something that you can prove statistically. So we can move to the next slide. And basically this paper uh, from that point is trying to reproduce with different methods and with different statistical analysis uh, the result that I explained to you uh, since the beginning. So here, uh, for example, uh, one of the things that is extremely difficult to do uh, in interspecies comparison is to directly compare the ball signal um, across spaces. And the reason being, I was talking about all these different field strengths between MRIs, but also all these different brain sizes. The reason being uh, is that it's gonna generate very important signal-to-nose ratio difference across all the spaces. So one of the way that I choose to directly compare the signal was to internally, within a spaces, compare if the signal between the PCC, the correlation between the PCC on the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex on the correlation between the PCC and the middle prefrontal cortex were higher than another within one species. So you can move completely to the next slide. So press two. And now we are on pairwise comparison of the the relative correlation differences. This is what I was explaining. I can't compare directly the correlation across spaces, but I can see if one connection is higher than another in spaces, within a spaces. And you can see that, for example, if I take the dorsal lateral prefrontal cluster correlation to the posterior cingulate cortex, so this is the extreme left on the figure A, uh, this... Connection are actually less stronger than the PCC correlation to the medial prefrontal cortex, so the blue box. And if I reproduce this analysis in other macaque, in other macaques, in other non-primate species, I can see that we have the opposite relationship. So this is why I was talking of a gap. It's because I believe that something happened in the evolution that allowed the medial prefrontal cortex to be strongly connected to the posterior cingulate cortex. So you can move to the next slide Um, on, I was wondering whether uh, this uh, correlation was affecting only the connection between the medial peripheral cortex on uh, the PCC, the posterior cingulate cortex. And to do that, I took another region of the mode network, the so posterior parietal cortex, on and an, on I analyzed the correlation between posterior cingulate cortex, posterior parietal cortex, sorry, on dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, on middle prefrontal cortex. So this is basically the same analysis as earlier, instead, in, yeah, instead that I took the, I replaced the PCC by the posterior parietal cortex. So now you can move completely to the next slide. And you can see the result of the PC, PC with the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that are less higher than the PPC with the medial prefrontal cortex in human. And we, again, we have the opposite relationship in all the non-aminoid primates. So one of the things that what I wanted to clarify was most of the study that study the networks in uh, various formula spaces use anesthesia. And I was wondering, okay, why nobody saw that before? I mean, especially in macaques. And I had an awake on an anesthetized data set in set. Then I just wanted to see if the anesthesia would strongly affect the correlation between this region in order to see if it could explain why it was not so obvious before in earlier study. Now you can move to the next slide. And you can see that, yes, the effect is absolutely huge, uh, that the correlation, whether it was between dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, so 8A on PCC, so 23B, uh, that we have a strong decrease during anesthesia, and it's exactly the same thing between medial prefrontal cortex and PCC, despite that this correlation, this decrease of correlation is actually much less than the correlation between dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and PCC. So, that would explain why we or other researchers struggle to differentiate the connectivity between dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex and medial prefrontal cortex uh, during an uh, anesthetized session of bold recording. So, now you can move to the next slide. So, in conclusion to, uh, of this study, uh, we uh, observed that the medial prefrontal cortex is poorly involved in the default mode network-like. Of non aminoid species, that uh, you can press the correlation between medial prefrontal cortex on the whole posterior default network is weaker in non aminoid. On that, we potentially discover a new network that seems to be uh, specific to non aminoid species. We still need to define what could be the function of these networks. But after discussing on also reading a lot of literature, it, again, this is a hypothesis, it could. Uh, this network could correspond to some social function of the spaces, but again, we need much, much more study before arriving to confirming this hypothesis. So this is the end of this talk, but I had if you are willing to still willing to hear me, um, uh, if you press next, uh, a very recent article that is about to be published in PNS. So if you have time, I'm willing to explain you that. It's going to take roughly between 5 and 10 minutes. So please let me know if it's okay for you.
1: Yeah, it's totally okay with me. It's more if it's okay for you to talk longer. Yeah,
4: yeah of course. I mean, I'm happy to, to, to give you that, uh, that pre-publication. And to, to, to... It's actually very related to what, what I'm talking about. It's almost like a continuity. So okay, but it's gonna be very quick. Um I, I made it I made it fast. So uh, you can so the article is called multilevel atlas comparison revealed divergent evolution of the Primate brain. So uh, one of the questions that is fairly common in the literature is whether this medial prefrontal cortex is overexpanded in um human in comparison to other species. And there is huge debate. Uh, with a lot of good research involved, that was claiming yes, it's overexpanded in human. No, it's not. Uh, it's not overexpanded in human. So I tried to dig a little bit into that question. And to do that, you can click on next slide. Uh, I actually downloaded freely available online digital atlases of uh, the mammalian brain, and I find 18 different atlases. And in these 18 atlases, I discovered that everybody is using a different classification of the brain area. Uh, so I had to uh, work into reclassifying this area into common classification. So you can click on next slide. And this is the reclassification of all these 18 atlas in a different level. And this level, for example, the level two, is the lobar level, so you're going to have in red the frontal lobe, in blue the parietal lobe, in green the temporal lobe, and in purple the uh, occipital lobe. The level three is more dedicated to regions that can be associated to function, such as motor, sensory motor, or medial prefrontal cortex, etc. So um, what I've done is that I wanted to uh, study whether the frontal or the medial prefrontal cortex were expanded in human, And you can click on next slide. So the traditional way of analyzing that is to perform what we call PGLS analysis, which is an analysis that is going to take into account the genetic proximity between spaces and is going to try to draw a regression between here the volume of the different lobes of the different animals. And uh, what we can see here is that on the top left uh, corner, the first um, the, the the first plot, you can see all the um, um, that all the primate species are indicated with an arrow. On that, the macaque, chimpanzee, and human they are indicated in red. On what you can see is that the regression line between the parietal lobe volume and the occipital lobe volume is actually. Um, the slope is actually much higher in those species, macaque, chimpanzee, human, than in all the other mammals. On mouse lemur, which is a primate included, but also marmoset. So the thing is that we started to have an idea of, oh, this volume seems to strongly increase in primate, and it just didn't appear like suddenly in human. It's a slow process of evolution, on uh, the, one of the lobes that seems to be the most overexpanded in human is actually the parietal lobe. We reproduce this analysis with uh, the frontal lobe, and we find that um, the frontal lobe also could be considered as overexpanded, but was also following the same pattern as for the parietal lobe. On the two other lobes that were uh, with lower slope in, again, those species, so uh, macaque, chimpanzee, and human. Um, Was a temporal on the occipital lobe. So this slope contain actually fairly amount of, uh, uh, of uh, we'd say sensory or or yeah, just visual auditory area that seems to be less expanded than the parietal and the frontal lobe. So we created a classification of the slopes, and we find that the fa- the parietal and frontal lobe were the lobes with the highest slope, and then we have the temporal on the occipital lobe. And again, I'm talking about the cation primates. And if I reproduce the same analysis in the other mammals, I found that the occipital, the temporal lobe are the lobe with the highest slope, and then you have the frontal and the parietal lobe. And we find that the frontal and the parietal lobe, they always follow each other, meaning that it seems that there is an interdependency of these two lobes. When one is growing, the other need to grow, whatever the species it is. You can click on next slide. So this analysis that I showed you earlier is a traditional way to do it, but there is actually some problem with this analysis that we think that we solve partially. For example, you need to use one region as regressor. and um, This is a problem because if you use a region that is uh, going to be underexpanded, for example, this is going to give the impression that another region is overexpanded. So we created this matrix that is able to analyze all those uh, overexpansion between every pair of region possible, and then you have the result in a matrix form. And we confirmed that in human, the frontal, the parietal lobe, the medial prefrontal cortex are overexpanded, whatever the kind of atlas you can use. So here on the left, you have the human uh, atlas of Glasser, on the human atlas of uh, or the brain tome atlas. So when we find that, well, I'm not going to show you that, but uh, uh, in, in chimpanzee, on, in macaques, we also have the same pattern with a frontal lobe that is considered as overexpanded. So showing that this is a very long story of overexpansion. And if you use other species, for example, marmoset, you're not going to observe that the frontal lobe is overexpanded in these species. So you can click on the next slide, and it should be the conclusion. Uh, hopefully, I didn't forget. Maybe I forgot to tell you to answer. Anyway, so now we are on the conclusion. And yeah, uh, my uh, conclusion is that I consider that humans are special because they carry the most relatively enlarged frontal and parietal lobe in an infraorder the catarini, that exhibit a disproportionate expansion of this area. So, we think that we had a divergence in primate evolution, roughly in our common ancestor of, between uh, old world monkey, uh, gray tapes, and aminoids. And uh, as I said, the parietal lobe is systematically linked to the frontal lobe. Uh, if you want to know the consequences on the functional architecture, you can read the cell report, but we already talked about it. And now I'm trying to, as I said, in to more and more go in the mechanism that could explain uh, this overexpansion, this new connection in humans, and how they can lead to our cognitive abilities, but also to other cognitive abilities in other spaces. So uh, finally, you can go to the next slide, and I would like to acknowledge all the people that participate in this study uh, in Vanderbilt, Wake Forest University, at the CEA in France on, uh at the, Institute of, uh, the Institut de la Sciences Cognitive, Marc-Jean-Rodin. I have to tell it in French, I have no idea how to translate that. But anyway, thank you very much. And um, now the floor is open to question.
1: Thank you so much. This is, um, yeah, this was such an amazing presentation and uh, special thanks to that you um, guided us through the whole story um through your papers and uh this was so much work <laughs> i can't imagine how, how many years does this uh presentation summarize and work
4: um so if you take from the mouse lemur uh this study started in uh 2017 on the cell report on the PNS. I started in 2019.
1: Yeah, well, and um, yeah, and thank you that you're sharing such a brand new uh, paper.
4: <laughs> yeah, it should be out next month. Uh, I, I should receive the proof like tomorrow or the next day, so it's gonna be out very soon.
1: Well, congratulations! That's amazing, and that's really wonderful data. Um, It's really cool to see um, basically the pathway to like the incremental um, steps to the human brain. That's really interesting, but I want to give uh, people uh, opportunity to ask questions. Serena, please go ahead.
2: Well, wonderful talk, Uh, such a broad range of data. And I, I love how you know the the perspective of tra- tracing the differences of of uh, evolution of you know the brain functional regions, um, but also the insights of how you know you're looking at what well in the default mode in this case, but what regions correspond to um, to what over the over the evolution in the species. I'm curious. You you closed on on looking into the mechanism. I've, I've taken a great interest in astrocytes uh recently in the function of the astrocytes in cisium and how it relates to you know coordinating neural activity. I'm curious um in some of the readings I've come across the the uh, proportion of astrocytes to neurons and how that's changed in in evolution um, the um, for example, there's one to three astrocytes in in uh, mice and rats, but by the time we're to humans, there's three to two. You know, mm-hmm. so there was a period, and and I don't have you know corresponding data from um, you know from chimpanzees, but there um, there is a, a suggestion that our astrocyte population grew in complexity and numbers. I'm curious, have you looked uh, about uh, looked into? Um, astrocyte functions in in the role of connecting these different regions, and uh, what comments you might have on that?
4: Yeah, uh, actually, you 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 just taught me something. Um, uh, from what I read in uh, in the literature, I thought that the supporting cells, other than the neur- other than neurons, were fairly stable uh, in the brain. It's Herculano Jose who produced a paper on that. Uh, but I mean, I think she just studied neurons versus other cells. So it's possible that there is a population of other cells that might have changed during evolution. So I might, on the, 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 the thing is that with both techniques, we are mostly um, studying what would correspond to neural activity. And we have absolutely any no idea of, what could actually participate to that? And you're right. That's why I believe we should go. Uh, we should go deep uh, in the in the mechanism that sustain that. And I have few idea of how to do that because the the the, the big problem with this kind of characterization is that it need to involve a lot of species. On, um, from my what I understand, it needs to involve the whole brain. So basically, if you want to try to characterize that with classical histology, it's impossible. Um, um, The technique of Herculano Husserl is very interesting. She basically take brain sample, extract the cells, count them and then tell you whatever population you have. Um, But you still don't have a very good spatial um, a special resolution of how the brain is organized. However, there is some other MRI technique that could be applied, uh, on, uh, th- that could help us answering that question, but I-, I think you are completely right. This is a very, very important question on not only neurons should be taken into consideration in order to understand how the brain has evolved.
2: am also curious, um, on the, actually on the FRMRI MRI technique. As well, there's um, you noted uh, that it's an indirect um, indication of neuronal activity, mm-hmm. and there's some question um, I'm, I'm certainly curious about interpreting the signals in in the in the in the presence of these astrocytes. It, it it's they do connect through the blood-brain barrier and um, to each other through gap junctions and and ultimately to the synapses. Um, and they communicate through these calcium resonant waves that um, that may be more energetic in demand than actual neural firing. And I'm wondering if part of what we're seeing in the MRI signal is the activity of supporting those calcium waves in, in addition to the neuronal activity. I'd be curious if we're if the signal is um, is com, conf, conflating the activity of the two.
4: Um, oh, it's, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's possible that some other cells are actually involved in the network conception of, uh, I mean that that we are, yeah, the network conception that we are registering with uh, with uh, with the fMRI technique. But uh, there is also supporting evidence uh, that, and with electrophysiology or uh, mm-hmm. with. Uh, Pet that also tend to show that those uh, those neuronal activity are generated by neurons, but again, it doesn't tell that that part of the signal could be generated by astrocyte. That that mm-hmm. it's it, it's difficult to to prove, but it would be very interesting to try to to have a functional signal that would be specific to astrocyte. But there is some techniques that start to, to appear in the field that in the long run that could lead to, to answer to this question?
2: So there's a final question. I, I was really, I really it blew my mind. If it was a 2012 paper done out of Rochester, an interguards group, I believe. They took uh, human astrocytes and um, progenitor cells and grew them in mice. And um, the results were fascinating in the sense that the astrocytes did take well these were um, um insensitive mice they took well they took over and integrated with the synapses of the mouse um, neurons um, and uh, were were much larger they propagated waves faster and the mice did in fact uh, have a far superior performance in learning and they were smarter mm. um and and so the distinction between human astrocytes and the astrocytes of mice has grown in complexity with the size, the number of processes, and the uh, kinetics of the waves. I'm just curious how much of a component in, in light of the, your topic, um, not just increases in numbers of astrocytes, but in terms of complexity and, and performance um, might also be a factor. I just I thought that was fascinating.
4: Yeah, I think this is yeah, this is great remarks and I I, I I would love so much to be able to answer this question, but uh it's it's this is what I wanna study in the in the in the close future. Uh on, on, on hopefully, uh, if we can have another talk in 15 years, I, I could provide some answers, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'm not yet there. I don't think the literature in terms of evolution is, for, from what I know, there yet. But uh, yeah, I'll, yeah, I would be actually interested if you can send me this reference, I would be actually very interested to read this article.
2: Oh, certainly. Um, I'll follow up. Certainly. Yes. Thank, Thank, you.
1: You Thank you very much. much. Thank you
2: but anyway mm. <laughs> well, wow. well yeah. no we're, I'm gathering together some some resources to look at modeling um, of these astrocytes and perhaps uh, have an impact in in ai so yeah i'll I'll certainly follow up thank you thank you and can I thank you for a, a, an amazing talk, Doctor? This is incredibly interesting. And there's a, actually a question from one of our audience members who asks, out of all the books on your bookshelf, which book do you treasure the most on this topic?
4: Um, oh, I'm really bad with name, but I actually got the, name, the book near me. So <laughs> we can help you with that. It's called Evolutionary Neuroscience. And it's edited by John Cass. Perfect. Thank you very much. Uh,
1: Yeah, if anyone has any questions, please press your mic. Ethan, do you have a question, a dolphin-related question, maybe? Um, Maybe Ethan is away from this stuff
3: because
1: yeah because uh, ethan if you realize come on he has the the dolphin brain there and i know he read a lot about dolphin brain so um are you planning on one day studying also the dolphin brain <laughs> he,
4: he, <laughs> I I honestly it. thought about that i thought like yeah i've read it would be amazing to put uh a dolphin, either anesthetized or awake in an MRI machine. I thought of many ways we could do that, and I, I think it would be passionating, Like, do dolphin have something that looks similar to the deformant network? Um, on on like just the brain. Is, I have no idea how the brain is organized, and I believe that we we know little about that. I don't know. Maybe Ethan is going to tell me I'm completely wrong. It's totally possible. I I do not, I do not know anything uh. about that, but.
3: Well, one thing that's interesting about it is they have a whole extra lobe, uh, but in general, like a lot of the, uh, you know, when people do these comparative analyses and they create sort of a hierarchy and mm-hmm. human brain, you know, human brains are usually always on the top. So I know there's been like brain size with cephalization taken into account and you know, neuron density, types of neurons, mm-hmm. but in actually, almost all of these categories of comparative analysis, uh, dolphin brains are actually above human brains in almost every category, which is just kind of an interesting thing when you when you see this kind of work done to sort of characterize various features of complex, quote unquote, complexity of brains.
4: And is there an atlas of the of the dolphin brain? Is there yeah. Do we know if they have like motor area like roughly in the same position as us? Yeah, there's
3: there's a lot of it. Um, There's also probably a lot that is, well, the Navy does a lot of the research. So a lot of it is, uh, I think, hidden inside there. But there's, um, yeah, there's definitely atlases and that sort of thing. I'm not a super expert or anything. It's just, uh, just, it is just interesting to see that, you know, when categorizing a lot of these different quantities uh, in terms of trying to, you know, get some kind of, semblance of hierarchy and, and these various things. It's, it's just it's an interesting pattern. Yeah, thank
1: yeah. you for
3: that. Uh, I mean, you that's... can see just in like by looking at it, there's more. You know, one of them is counting the density of gyri and sulci, right? And human beings come up high, but if you look at it, you can see the density is even greater in dolphins uh, for that major morphological feature alone. But then you. The types of neurons, the you know the, the branching of dendrites, all these kinds of things that people have done, in comparing the you know neocortex to body size, you know the ratio to that. Again, you know dolphin brains, bottlenose dolphins, not not regular dolphins definitely. Like spinner mm-hmm. dolphins don't have this property. It's so it is bottom uh, typical only to bottlenose dolphins. Yeah.
5: Thank you so much. I mean that was wonderful. I mean, it's on, I mean, I'm talking about dolphins as well as whatever we had here. Thank you for sharing your fascinating work. Uh, I mean, I think that f- from the clinical perspective, I'm thinking about some of the patients, especially that they are dealing with the Alzheimer and dementia. Actually, as you might know, that in the MRI scan from them, they have the, I mean, tau tanglement and as well as the. I mean, all of those symptoms that is showing the changing in the brain region and functionality, but somehow they are not symptomatic. So I was just wondering, because you mentioned about the chronic pain, and however we know about the microglia, and use, uh, which they are just inducing the LTD in the, that region, and there's a relationship between them and the uh, inflammation with the TNF-alpha, interleukin number two, and also PP2P. So I was just wondering, uh, do, could you gather any information in the clinical level?
4: Um, you mean about those factors measured in the species? Like how they evolve? Yes, or I mean, I was I'm just sure. wondering
5: because we are talking about the species, but in the same time, in a human, we have some similarities. That's why we are just using the animal model. And my question specifically was about the, the region that you just mentioned and microglia, and plasticity as well as the alzheimer because they can be related somehow to each other i was just wondering maybe you have further information that you can share with us in a clinical level
4: i mean i'm 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 sorry i'm not sure if i fully understand your question so uh, i'm gonna try to answer but if i answer like if, if my answer is not correct please please help me um yeah, the 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 thing is that what is interesting is that in in macaques, in marmosets, in mouse lemur, they don't develop disease that could correspond to what we call Alzheimer's disease. They 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 don't have naturally like tau proteins. Uh, they develop very few amyloid plaques. Um, so. So the question one of the questions we, we know partially why the 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 DNA sequence of of um I, I'm I'm far from my field of knowledge now, so I'm afraid to say some stuff that are not true. But yeah, the DNA sequence is different. Uh that the one that is coding for the for the from the precursor of amyloid and I forgot the name, but anyway, there is some genetic differences that explain why this uh, amyloid protein do not aggregate in those spaces. Uh, But except that we know that we can, despite this modification of uh, DNA configuration, uh, we can still manage to induce it. um, And it seemed to spread along, um, along the connectivity uh, along, the, the, along the network, the way that the region are connected together. So we know that this difference of connection might have an important influence on the way that the animal's model that we are using are going to develop symptoms on potentially uh, on potentially uh, when we're going to study their behavior or their cognitive ability that might be different. And I think this is something that with this study now need to be taken more in consideration. Yes, in those animals we can induce pathology that, from uh, I would say, biological point of view, when you're going to measure amyloid plaques or, or tau or inflammation, might look like something that could could be similar to human Alzheimer. But in terms of function, since the network are completely different, you might expect. A different spread of this protein in the brain, so yeah, this is what I can say in terms of clinical. After, like the the way that I, I build this data set, it's so so rare on on the, the 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 amount of data that you need to perform this study is so important that it's very very difficult to answer exactly from. From um, I don't know NFT or whatever factor you want to compare across spaces to actually do it across spaces, uh, uh, it's it's very difficult because we are missing data and we are missing way of comparing those data between spaces. I don't know if I'm clear with what I'm saying if, and if it answered your question.
5: Yes, perfectly. That's why I mean, uh, they're supposed not to be a clear answer because the science is not clear sometimes, uh, but uh, and one. I mean, another question that I have. Did you have any experience with exposure with the bacterial or gram-negative bacteria in any of these regions, in other experiments or such a thing?
4: With what kind of bacteria, sorry?
5: Gram-negative bacteria.
0: Oh,
4: no.
5: Okay. So, thank you so much. No,
4: you're welcome.
1: Um, so, um, my... PhD supervisor was Joseph Ledoux. I don't know if you know him, but he liked it a lot of anxiety fear-related memory Um, and um, He basically later on After all the years of us doing research and saying it's fear memory He didn't you know allow anyone to say fear memory anymore. He said only threat Memory when we did um studies and rats and so on, and uh, he also later published articles and books that annoyed a lot of people. <laughs> but he might be right when I look at your data, and that's why I thought your data so fascinating. He basically said most of the stuff we did was useless because whatever we for anxiety disorders and to help people. Because the tre- treatments we came up with didn't really solve anxiety um, for people. It kind of downregulated general brain activity, but there's no drug or cure for, you know, uh, anxiety disorders, PTSD, and so on. And what he says is that um, the brain structures for higher thought, abstract thoughts, like, you know, what people have um, predicting that something will be completely wrong and everything, you know, um, I don't know, you have an anxiety from traveling, let's say, and then you imagine all these stories in your brain, and your head, and, and then you avoid traveling or whatever it is. And he says, mm, there must be a very distinct brain structure in humans that we are not um, studying in animals and that's why the drugs we came up with and they work really well in rats they won't work in humans and we can all just go home <laughs> basically he didn't say that but kind of <laughs> a little bit. so um, yeah would we do you would you support that because he says you know it must be in the human um, very distinct human networks that these worry thoughts or anxiety abstract thoughts happen in humans that cannot really happen in other animals, especially not in rats. Like yeah,
4: yeah I I I think you are so I, I it's it's exactly the same problem for me with Alzheimer or, or the problems that we try to solve with mass on rats. I think this is this is great to to, to to study the basic mechanism on on I think I can't count the amount of time we 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 solve the Alzheimer, the, the induced Alzheimer disease in mice and rats, but never actually managed to achieve to do it in human. And it's exactly the same problem in your field. On, um, I wonder if like the way that science is done is always the same thing. Like we're going to use mice or rats to whatever, whatever the pathology is, we're going to use them because they're small, because it's easy to house, because it's easy to handle on, on we don't consider the relationship between how the animal is functioning on, on, uh, on how we are functioning on. Yeah. I believe that, that, human are special, so it's actually you're right. Difficult to, to to study the the the, 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 the yeah emotion or anxiety in a in a in a, in in human based on rat's brain. Um, but I also believe that each species is special. Uh, I believe if you try to 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 cure the anxiety in dogs using using mass on rats, you gonna you gonna have the same problem if you wanna cure that, you actually needed to either do it in a probably genetically closer species to the one you are studying, or to do it in the real species, which is obviously not an option in human. Uh, but also, I think maybe we should also think better how we choose our model. On, or I might say, uh, this is a, a hypothesis on has no real base. But for example, for the problem of anxiety. I wonder if, for example, dogs would be a more adapted model to study human anxiety. These animals tend to be very anxious. Uh, They also are animals that are very social, uh, that potentially display characteristics that could be closer to human, and that would potentially help us to have more to have more translational data. But again all of that is linked to the fact that we don't know anything or know very little about mammalian behavior or mammalian cerebral organization on, on genetics on how all of them are related together. How? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then we also keep mixing up mouse data and rat data many times. And, you know, mice are mainly, um, prey and rats are mostly yeah. predators <laughs> and then sometimes some labs make them up mix them up in the same lab and any <laughs> and the mice are constantly scared yeah i think we have an issue to like that we basically humanize all these organisms
2: mm-hmm.
1: right uh we don't consider how they would actually live out there in their real habitat and uh, and that will already kind of mess up the data probably so <laughs> but i think we're getting a little bit better at it um so but yeah it's interesting so are you planning so i know you're mostly um evolutionary by bi- biology like neuroscientist
3: mm-hmm.
1: so um, are you maybe, or are your colleagues maybe um, going to do more in the terms of, you know, different disorders and use that data? Or?
4: No, um, I'm in a lab that uh, is mostly studying um, working memory with electrophysiological techniques. So I was quite alone in my field, in my lab. Um I, Yeah, I would like to, I'm actually very interested into uh, studying anxiety in dogs and try to actually compare how it works in humans and dogs and to potentially see if there could be um, an interesting spaces to help us understand how how this mechanism of anxiety works in us, work in them, and try to see if there is common features that could define a, a potential uh therapeutic target or or whatever but i'm not i'm not yet to that point now i'm gonna gonna try to reestablish myself in a in a new in a new lab and try to 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 begin uh to begin my yeah my evolutionary study And this is sadly project for for that will be not developed yet
1: wow that's congratulations where are you going to be i guess
4: so I'm gonna be in Lyon, in France, on uh, in a lab that is called uh, Institute of Science, of, uh, Institute of Cognitive Science, Marc Rod.
1: That's wonderful. It's so nice in, in Lyon. <laughs> I,
4: it's a nice town. Yeah,
1: it's wonderful, and uh, you know, the public transportation is wonderful too. <laughs>
4: Yeah, it is. <laughs> you
1: have to make it every few minutes, and it's actually nice and new. <laughs> Anyways.
4: Yeah, I will be glad to not use my car every day. That's for sure.
1: Right. Uh, did you miss uh, friends a lot? Yeah,
6: did
4: I, you... I didn't went back since COVID, so it has been almost three years without seeing my family. So yeah, I'm extremely excited actually to go back home in in one month or mo- a little bit more than one month. Oh
1: wow, that's. Awesome. Yeah, my family is coming this summer. I hope I'll go. I'm from Portugal.
4: Oh, nice. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I hopefully go in the winter. But um, yeah, I um, I don't know uh, how many minutes do we have left, or is it getting kind of late for you? Uh,
4: For me, uh, I don't know. Are you talking to me? Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Check with you.
4: I mean, it's. I'm. It's up to you guys. If you still, if there's still a question, I'm here to answer. I have no problem. I have nothing.
1: Serena, episode, I so. know Serena has my question.
2: Well, yeah. So, um, okay. I'll, I'll take those extra minutes. Um, I'm curious though. What, what's fascinating about your data is it's you're exploring the default mode, correct? Yes. And um. It's an interesting question to think, well, what, it, you know, if, in terms of thought, um, across the species, what the default mode might represent and, you know, are, are, is that line of thinking, you know, in correspondence, for example, I, you know, I doubt them, you know, mice are sitting around worrying about astrocytes, for example, mm-hmm. but, um, So it's it's a curious, you know, and and Katarina sort of touched on this with, you know, are mice afraid all the time versus rats. Uh, Are there any, um, I mean, how would you even approach um, controlling, you know, categories of thought and categorizing those with your methods under the corresponding uh, fMRI data with the techniques you apply?
4: You mean in human or in other species? Well, across the species,
2: putting... um, It could be, you know, a little macabre (laughs) to put, you know, have a, a, you know, cross-species condition that would, you know, require certain regions of the brain for processing and see if those regions are at least better uh, in, are in better correspondence. Um, Do do you know, does that make any sense?
4: Yeah, um, like one way of, I can think, for example, is so there is first thing is that there is very little spaces in which you can actually like study force of emotion, because the first step, especially with fMRI, is that they need to be willing to go in the magnet and they also need to be not completely panicked about the idea of being in the magnet. So this is restraining the potential spaces to I would say macaques, chimpanzee, whatever, um, whatever, hominoid, humans, maybe dogs, dogs for sure, and maybe other species that I don't know very well, but it's very narrow amount of species. But if you want to do that in the spaces, uh, I believe that, for example, one way to study emotion and it has been done in dogs, I don't think it has been done with fMRI, is, for example, to to show them picture of the owner, of someone they know, someone they don't know, and um, then you can start to, so you will not have a direct access whether they're actually understanding what they're seeing, but it's kind of, the, the result, we're kind of showing that, yes, the dogs had region that were related to positive emotion when they were seeing their owner, uh, they had other area when they were seeing, seeing someone else, that kind of stuff. Um, I believe that we can also uh, use uh, the system of a tracking to try to see what happens when they look, I don't know, more into the eyes of someone rather than the rest of the face. Um, but of course there is no direct way uh, to, study like their fault you can't you can tell to a dog like think of of a boat and see what's going on in his brain and i i would i wish it would be possible <laughs> but uh yeah it's it's you, the, the problem is that you have very little insight in the in, in the in the fact that they actually did what you've think that they were thinking on a right,
2: right. So perhaps through some type of difference, where you've, you've already characterized, you know, their default modes, but in showing them a, um, a pleasureful conditioned stimulus versus mm-hmm. one that isn't and looking at the differences from their respective default modes. Is that um, to see if there's, you know, at least the difference in activity
4: corresponds so, yeah. Yeah, the thing is that you should not see a default mode network if they are engaged in a task. The, the default mode network is going to disappear and the network that is associated to the function that you are using is going to show up. So studying the default mode network is basically studying a species at rest, which is also one thing that is very difficult. On, uh, For example, in this study, the cell report, one thing that i want to dig into is is how i can be sure absolutely sure that those spaces were completely at rest because this is one of the criticisms that can be made uh we still have we we still can't ask to the monkey the dog the the marmoset whether he's completely at rest so you you can with the statistics on 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 with um with the, with a huge population believe that, okay, these animals are habituated since a very long time to go in an MRI machine and to, and they're not stressed. They are calm that they, they don't show sign of fear, but still, it's still a question that is open to me on. It's still also a question that could explain this difference of architecture. So all of that to say that, yeah, the, 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 the door is not closed yet, and we still need to try to go further.
2: Well, what about the, um, uh, you know, so putting in, um, I'm sorry? No,
1: Kettering? no, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead.
2: Okay, I was just going to ask if, um, if we, you know, you were to look at the decay of a condition stimulus and the arrival of that default mode through, mm-hmm. you know, when the, as they as as it wears off and they get bored and they go back to the default mode. Um, there could be, in principle, a time sequence that would show the um,
4: the returning of, yeah. of the default mode. Maybe there's something there. Yeah, that's interesting. And also, this net so the default mode network has shown also to be, for example, not only uh, active during um during rest, but there is also so we think that mindfulness is activating the default mode network. It's what has been shown in human. So, but it's absolutely impossible to ask a monkey to perform mindfulness tasks. Uh, but there is also another way to study the default network, which is called task switching. And um, this could be a way, an interesting way of studying the default network in macaques, but uh, this is still open question.
1: So, I have two things uh, and two people you might would like to collaborate with. So we had a guest speaker here, uh, I think two or three months ago, Dr. Field, and he works actually for a company, but he developed a kernel flow device, um, which is using near infrared spectroscopy system. Yeah, to, yeah. yeah, as a helmet that you can carry around. And it works really well. Um, so I believe you can train a lot of different animals to wear a helmet, like at least a dog and and yeah. like a monkey. I'm actually
4: working on it. <laughs>
1: oh you are. Oh, right. Yeah, maybe you can I, I sent you in the back channel a message. So if you go on this paper airplane symbol, you see the messages. But I can also send you an email from, yeah, he was here. Yeah, he's, please. Yeah. And then the other guest speaker we had last Friday, he, he is in the, UK, in the UK
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, um, he works with dogs. So he was working, uh, he's working like he just published how, uh, dogs recognize dog and human emotions. And he's a really cool uh, dog behavior scientist. So, it's just uh, yeah. two people I thought that would be interesting maybe for you.
4: Yeah, 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 check. exactly. Yeah, no, please, yeah, sh- share share me their the information. I would I would be glad to to discuss with them because the FNIR problem we we, we actually, the FNIR, we have actually a lot of problem with it. So, so it could be nice to have another person that could advise me on that. That would be great. on um, yeah. I'm, for the dog behavior person, please, the researcher, please. But so I can't it's like see working the... on
1: a like this, like also using near infrared spectroscopy.
4: Yeah, but the problem is that the dog brain, if they have a fixed call on on like there is very little area that you can record um yeah, if yeah. if yeah, yeah, on it's the infrared need to be very adapted to the dog brain. Uh, I have a student that is working on it, but it seems to be more complicated than I originally thought. So, uh, but yeah, having other.
1: Maybe there are dogs with less thick uh, skull.
4: But they have like. They they have like. It's not. It's, excuse me. It's not really just skull. It's, it's the muscle that are surrounding the, the skull that are. Oh. Big.
1: So there are no dogs with like just very little muscle. Sorry. Like dogs that have very little muscle, you know those little dogs that like. I mean, m- in
4: comparison to the size of the brain, they have big muscles. Ah,
1: uh, yeah, I see, I see. Yeah, well, I I thought I had that a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> it a
4: is, friend. it is, it is. I actually, I, I was working on it like last month, so it's it, and I thought it would be great to be able to to measure that. But um, yeah, I mean, probably, I mean, some people have done that. There is one article that that managed to do it, but you need to you you are gonna be basically able to record only frontal area, which is nice. I'm interested in this area. <laughs>
1: and and cats don't they have like I mean, especially their you That's know funny. their visual system is very similar.
4: Yeah, maybe yeah, they I mean, have... could be a good idea in cat. Yeah,
1: Amundis, I'm sorry that we made you wait for so long. Uh,
6: Ask ahead. Well, it's okay. Thank you very much. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, I just have a question, but I'm worried because, like, uh, I have two questions. One of them is related and the other one might not be related, but I would like uh, to know if maybe you can help with an answer, uh, doctor. Uh, the question uh, I'm, I'm asking about basically ADHD, and I was wondering, like, if, if MRI uh, can uh, be can confirm, actually, uh, someone uh, can confirm like a case of uh, neurodiversity like uh, ADHD, especially uh, like maybe in uh, dopamine receptors or frontal lobe. And my other question is that I read an article uh, like suggesting that dogs, that there was like a models of uh, uh, dogs that uh, it was like to prove if dogs uh, might have similar traits of uh, 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 um, of those uh, with the ADHD, and that um, like what I know is like ADHD. The traits of ADHD are like heterogeneous, especially even and for human between one patient to another, it's very different. And uh, but uh, have you, doctor, come across any model that uh, proves if doctor if uh, dogs have uh, similar t- similar traits uh, of uh, to those uh, with ADHD? I hope uh, my question was clear. I'm sorry. Yeah,
4: it is. It is. Uh, there is two questions in your question. The first one was whether we could characterize ADHD with fMRI. Um, I I have to say that I don't know especially for ADHD because there's been a long time I didn't look into this paper. But uh, I know that for most uh, um, for most brain particularity uh, fMRI can be a great tool to characterize. A group, but it's more difficult to characterize as individual because uh, fMRI has an important variability. On it's not yet applied in clinic because of this variability. I know that there is several machine learning algorithms that are more and more able to with by, by using these bold sequences fMRI acquisition to to predict whether you have ADHD or not or other pathology, but but we're not there yet. Uh probably like we are currently building like more and more powerful MRI. I'm not sure if if it will one day be used in clinic or if it will be useful to increase the repeatability of the FMRI acquisition or if it's come from another problem like the antenna or whatever. But yeah we, we're not that year yet but maybe in in in, in, in few years, decades, it, it will be a thing. Um, I, I really hope it will because I think there will be a lot of uh, clinical application on the, the field. I know it's mostly Alzheimer's and I know that having an early diagnosis for this pathology can be very useful for, for ADHD. I'm really not a specialist, so uh, I can give you more information about that. On um, For for the, the fact that DOG could be a good model for for uh, for human ADHD, I honestly don't know. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a very interesting question and you. You make me want to dig a little bit into that, uh, but I can't answer right now, sadly.
6: Thank you, Doctor. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you.
1: Yeah, we had um, in the newsroom this morning we uh saw you know the a paper like a article about the paper that how much a d h d increased uh and uh that actually the medication really doesn't help much with um the kids studying better and um but yeah that's a whole a whole nother topic and discussion, but I think it all goes back to in what animal models we studied all of these effects. And then we just translate it to humans. And yeah, that doesn't probably work. But that goes back to my previous comments. So. Yeah, I think, does anyone have um, another urgent question? It's getting kind of late. Um, so if there's no, let me check the chat. Oh, Mona asked a question. Uh, she is curious in the chat. Um, she's curious if the amount of social interaction plays a role in development of abstract thought in various animals.
4: Wow. Um, that's a deep question. I wish I could answer, uh, I mean. I have no scientific best answer to that one. But I guess it does. Uh, social interaction, I mean, especially for primates are really important. We know that social interaction preserves our cognition. We know that social interaction help us from not getting, not getting, for slowing the symptoms of Alzheimer. So, yeah, it probably have a development on that track for, but, but yeah, I have no science behind that to clearly answer to accurately answer to that question i'm sorry
6: doctor if a part of the brain is misfunctioning would that be uh, you that can show in fMRI uh, even if uh, in animals or human
4: uh, yeah it it can but it's it's still difficult to to find it within one individual uh, you 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 can see if a group of people with Alzheimer, for example, is going to be different from a group of people without Alzheimer, but within one specific patient, you yet I you can't. It's 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 not it using like clinic yet. Way. Sorry.
6: It's like a comparative way. We use it to compare like one brain to another or to compare response from one individual to another. That's uh, what's usually you are using in the studies, right? Uh,
4: No, we we rarely compare one brain. We usually compare group of brain to increase the statistics and to be able to, 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 to characterize where the dysfunction occurred. But... Within one person, if you just put one patient in the MRI magnet, you, you, you can't yet characterize if a patient is have or not such disease. You can probably give some percentage, say, oh, uh, this person have sixty or seventeen percent to have this disease, but this is not going to be very accurate. From as, as far as I know.
6: Okay.
1: Okay, thank you so much for all the questions, everyone, and for coming. And a special thanks to you, Clement. And you. I hope I said your name right again. And um, please um, come back anytime, maybe with um, one day with updates from your new um, uh, job in Leo. Maybe uh, you will will share some exciting new research it's such an interesting field and I think it's very important work um, to maybe you know test everything again uh, what we know so far from animal models and in different models and um, yeah thank you so much for coming and I hope you enjoyed it and um, please. Um um, yeah, everyone in the room um follow the club if you liked uh, discussions like this um feel free to come back and ask questions anytime and yeah, thank you so much again and good luck uh, going thank back you home time, Doctor, this is you back.
4: <laughs> yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure to to speak with you guys honestly.
1: yeah, enjoy France and um Europe. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it. definitely. Thanks. Fascinating data. A very interesting topic. I can't wait to hear what you do next. And we're going to wish you all the funding as well as all the best. I <laughs> know, that's,
4: that's my problem at the moment. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. That's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs>
1: Thank you. I, I Thank miss you so much. much. Thank you. And uh, the least bureaucracy also. And I hope those helmets work. Maybe you'll try cats. Let me know. <laughs> yeah,
4: it's yeah, yeah. It's it's in the back of my mind. <laughs> <laughs>
1: thank you. Okay, um, okay. Thank you, everyone. Um, and um, have a good evening um, or morning or um, wherever you are around the world. And um, yeah, enjoy the rest of the week. And maybe you'll come back to um, to our guest speaker events here. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, Thank one. You, doctor. everyone. Good night,
4: everyone. Good night.